This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem Wa ma arusalna min qablika illa rijalan nuhi ilayhim أهل القرى أفلم يسيروا في الأرض أفلم يسيروا في الأرض فينظروا كيف كان عاقبة الذين من قبلهم ولدار الآخرة خير للذين اتقوا أفلا تعقلون رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقهوا قولي فالحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على رسول الله وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين اما بعد once again everybody assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh try to what i'll try to do tonight is cover some things i've come to learn about ayah number 109 of surah yusuf i apologize for not being able to make the dars yesterday and also starting late today because i'm still kind of working with time management with the class going on in the daytime and preparation and other things. So, but inshallah ta'ala, hopefully everything will settle down and we can be on a regular, more normal human schedule soon. Um, what I want to talk to you about today is uh, something about this final passage of Surah Yusuf. I may have brought it up to you before, but I think it deserves uh, a revision. And that is that you will notice, if, you, if you're just reading the English translation, which is a way of capturing at least some glimpse of what's going on in the actual Arabic text. Uh, you'll notice that Allah is talking to the Prophet and then He's talking about the Quraysh. Then He's talking to the Prophet and He's talking about the Quraysh. And He's talking to the Prophet and about the Quraysh. And I want you to visualize what that means rhetorically. So there are two audiences, right? You're talking to someone and about someone, right? And of course, they're all, they can all hear you. So now what I want you to imagine first is a very basic sort of example. I'm sitting at the dinner table with two of my kids and I'm talking to one of them and I keep bringing up the other one without talking to him, right? So I, I'm talking to one and keep bringing up the other one and keep referencing him, and I don't address him. What does that tell you about my intent as a speaker? What it tells you is, first of all, I want to have this conversation with you. I want you to hear that I'm talking about you, but I'm upset with you, or there's some reason where I'm not dig- dignifying you with directly talking to you, right? And it's especially worse, now imagine... Let me give you a different scenario. I'm the teacher. Uh, Imagine a classroom. I'm the teacher and I have an assistant, right? So I have a teacher's assistant who basically, you know, collects all the homeworks from the students and grades them or whatever he does, right? And all the students are sitting in class. And I'm so frustrated with the mistakes people made in the homework, the students made in the homework, that I'm talking to him about how terrible they did in class, right? These students, are they even in class? Seriously, are they even paying attention? Do they not know that they have to read this? Do they not know that they have to actually be here and, you know, and, and attend all of the sessions? Do they not know that we covered this like two months ago? Whatever. I'm yelling at him, but I'm not yelling at him. I'm yelling at them, and they can hear it, but I'm actually talking to him. And that's my way of expressing, first of all, the importance of his role, the TA's role. The TA almost becomes an important ambassador of the people of the class, in the classroom. Right? And in fact, now they understand that when the TA is putting pressure on them, someone above him, the TA, the teacher, is actually putting pressure on him. 
And it also kind of instills a fear in them of the teacher. Like, wow, he's really upset at us. So much so that he's not even talking to us directly. Right? So this is a kind this in, in old Arabic rhetoric, in, in Balagha studies, this is called iltifat. A simple English word for that nowadays is transition. Meaning, it's like my eyes and my speech is focused towards one person while they can hear. The old Arabs used to have a saying, you know, like the old, old famous saying, uh, which is, uh, you know, back in the day, the Arabs didn't have, we didn't have apartments and like mansions and things like that. People were neighbors to each other and the only thing separating them was a wall, right? So when people were discussing their business, the next door neighbor can hear everything. Right? They, they can tell what's going on. They know everybody else's drama in the village. So there's a famous saying where the guy is yelling at his wife or his daughter or something. He says, I mean you. I'm talking to you and I'm, ref I'm talking to you. And you can listen too, neighbor, because I know you're listening. <laughs> right? So the point is that there's an acknowledgement of the other audience that's there. If you keep that in mind, you'll notice from the very beginning. Um, most people, no matter how hard you try, aren't going to believe. Who is the most people? The audience of the Prophet They can hear these words too. They're coming out of the Prophet's mouth. And the audience is going, he's talking about us. You're not asking them for compensation. Instead of the Prophet saying to the people, I'm not asking you for compensation. Allah tells him, no, you're not asking them. You're not asking them like Allah is talking to the Prophet and he's not even addressing them. In who Allah dhikrul How many miraculous signs on the, in the skies and the earth do they, do they pass by? Who is he talking to? The Prophet Who is he talking about? The Quraysh, the audience of the Prophet. Again, not talking to them directly. And they commit shirk? Most of them don't believe in Allah except they do shirk along with it. Are they feeling safe that a hovering, overarching punishment, a form of punishment of Allah will not come at them? Or the hour will arrive and attack them all of a sudden? And they will have no clue? Tell them this is my path. Say this is my path. So now, who's the Prophet talking to? The Prophet himself. Allah is talking to the Prophet And the Quraysh are being talked about in the third person. This is the ayah we spent three sessions on. This is my path. I call to Allah with insight. Wa subhanallah. I and whoever follows me. Wa subhanallah. And I declare Allah's perfection beyond all flaw. And I'm not one to commit shirk. Today's ayah. وَمَا أَرْسَلَّا مِن قَبْلِكَ إِلَّا رِجَالًا نُوحِي And we didn't send... From a long since a long time before you, except men that we revealed to. Illa rijalan Another qira'ah of this ayah is Illa rijalan Except men that we that were given revelation. That revelation was given to would be a good translation. So two ways of looking at it. We didn't send before you except men to whom we gave revelation, or we didn't send except much from much before you except men to whom revelation was given. Yuhailehim. Min ahlil qura from the people of the towns, from among the townsfolk, and that's something we'll dig into a little bit later. Afalam yasiru fil ard. Didn't they then? Have they not then traveled around in the land, in the region? Fayanduru and have they thus not? Then they haven't. Haven't they then seen? Kaifa kana aqibatul ladina min qablihim? 
how did the how did the outcome look like how did the outcome look for those who came from such long ago from before them wala darul akhirati khairun and the home of the the eventual the home of the final life is better lilladhina taqaw for those who cautioned themselves and protected themselves afala taqilun why don't all of you understand so one interesting thing here for the first time didn't they travel didn't they see what happened to previous nations right they and they and the ayah ends afala taqilun why don't you all understand in other words there's a switch from all of you from them to all of you this is al iltifat min al ba'id ila al mutakallim or or ila al hadir meaning transition from someone who's in the third person far away to someone who's right in front of you right so i say for example i i give this example often i don't get tired of it so i find out that one student cheated on their exam in the classroom right i find out that they plagiarized and i come in and i say some students think they can get away with cheating Some people think it's fine. They have no moral problem with it. They're studying Quran, but they don't seem to think that it's wrong to be dishonest and deceitful while engaging in the study of Allah's book. That doesn't seem to be a contradiction in their mind. And I keep using the word some people, the kind of person, all third person, mysterious, right? So the the one who does it is like, is he talking about me or somebody else? Ah, probably not me. I'm still good because I ain't some people. That's not my name. and then all of a sudden i say uh kareem by the way if there's a kareem watching i'm sorry okay so <laughs> kareem can i talk to you for a minute who kareem's life flashes before his eyes man cuz a second ago he was some people he felt a, felt a sense of relief right cuz it's a what's called diffusion of responsibility you know sometimes uh young young guys used to come and ask me hey ustad can you give me tips on how to give a khutbah please Can you give me can I have a khutbah next week? <laughs> I was like, okay, don't say some people. And don't just keep saying you, say we, include everybody, including yourself. Don't talk down to people. And when you say some Muslims do this and some people do that, everybody in the audience is thinking, I'm sure there are some people like that. It ain't me though. Right? They they can't connect with the third person because it's far away. And especially if someone's culprit or guilty, there when they hear some people they distance that from themselves even more like hey you didn't point the finger directly at me so i'm good right so here what allah does if we accept this qira'ah this is the qira'ah of hafs um and we'll talk about the other qira'at also there are two issues of uh, uh recitation variations in this ayah one of them is what i already told you we inspire to them or inspiration was given to them those are the two ways it can be read The other is the last part afala taqilun do they not then do you not then think is also read afala yaqilun do you not then think There are actually two readings of this ayah that are mutawatira that are trans, the, the transmission comes to us right the hafs translation or the hafs uh, reading which is probably most of you watching um, the printed edition of you know the mushaf uh, with the dots and everything the way they are you probably read taqilun But in the tafsir we find actually there are mutawatir and and uh, authenticated readings of afala yaqilun. What that would mean is the passage continues in the third person. But another reading is that the passage continues and all of a sudden Allah turns to the you know Allah turns to all of them and says I've been talking to you in the sec- third person now I'll talk to you directly. Don't you think? Are you then not going to think? Where is your mind? Why aren't you thinking about this? Afala 
تَعْقِلُونَ So now we come to actually the, this was kind of an overall stylistic thing that's important to note in Qur'an studies. Who is Allah talking to? Who's in the background audience? How is the conversation ensuing? These are things to be mindful of when you're reading the Qur'an. But now let's turn to the subject matter of the ayah itself. In the previous ayah, Allah told the Prophet ﷺ, declare, let them know this is your way, whether they want to follow it or not. But you're not going to be one of them, right? You're not going to be one of them. So you, there's a kind of what's called bara'a. Bara'a means I am announcing that I am not like you. I am not among the mushrikeen. In the next ayah, Allah says, but so you know when you say I am not like you in my worldview, in my path, the life that I've chosen, then the Prophet ﷺ is diverging from the dominant culture and the dominant sociology, the society, the dominant practices, the dominant family traits. He's, he's leaving all of that behind. And he's, any who follow him are becoming basically rebels and revolutionaries against the, the, the current of their society. And in the next ayah, Allah says, by the way, you're not the first to have to stand like that. We didn't send before you except men. Now some Mufassirun looked at the word men here, Rijalan, and said, ah, we have proof now that prophets, Allah only sent men, He did not send women, and there's a whole debate about, you know, why this ayah is proof about that subject. I would actually make that a secondary discussion, if not even a tertiary discussion. The reason for that is because that's not the subject matter of the surah. What is the point of saying men here? Was there a conversation previously about there's confusion whether women can be prophets or not? Is that the subject matter? Is that, you know, sometimes when you're talking about something and somebody wants to throw in a tangent and take the conversation in a different direction, right? That conversation may have its place. What is the Islamic evidence that prophethood is only for men? There's a place for that conversation. But in the course of discussing this surah, I would rather not go off on that tangent. I would rather stay on the subject that the surah is calling for. You wouldn't imagine that when this surah was being recited and all the thoughts that are running through the minds of somebody who's listening to Surah Yusuf, that now they're like, I wonder if Allah only sent men as prophets. Ah, I got the answer. That's not the case. This, this, this ayah is not the answer to that question necessarily. Right? But some have, and some actually even associated a narration with it because there was a question about that or there was an allegation about that and then this ayah came. The problem with that is that narration doesn't even match historically because that's way after and this is in Makkah. So you can't even tie those two things together. It doesn't make sense. But what is the point then? Okay, that's not the point. Then what is the point? The point is that Allah Azza wa Jalla is telling, telling us one of two things. There's two basic ways of looking at this ayah. I'll share both and I'll tell you which one myself and Suhaib are inclined towards. But I'll share both with you. It all boils down to what you mean by qura. It says, men that we gave inspiration to from within the people of the towns, al qura. So al qura could mean big cities. Nowadays in modern Arabic, fusha Arabic, Qariya uh, means village. Qariya means what? Village. But in old Arabic, Qariya in the Quran is used even for Egypt. The Egyptian empire. Uh, that's not no village. Right? Just now, when they, the caravan came back to meet Yaqub, and they said, well, they took the brother. And the father didn't believe them a second time. They said, go ask the Qariya we were in. Go ask the, the town we were in. They were referring to what town? Egypt. Egypt is not the village. Egypt, Egypt is the center of that civilization. I was asking Sahib, when did these pyramids exist? Like, did they exist at the time of Yusuf? Like, 
And they weren't ruins by then, right? They were still in their heyday. They, these were like, they were creating heaven on earth kind of thing. That's what they were going for, right? He said they, were, they must have been around a thousand, we did some digging, must have been about a thousand years old by the time Yusuf salam's life takes place and th this adventure takes place. So the, Egypt looks like that. <laughs> and Allah calls it a qariya. You know what that tells you? That tells you that Quran's not using the word qariya as a village, right? It's using it, and sometimes in the Quran, it's used interchangeably for Medina or city. So it's, 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 that's happened in the Quran. And in fact, it's even happened in this surah because the women in the city were talking and spreading the rumor about the minister's wife. Remember that? Right? And that ayah uses the word al-Madina. And the brothers go back and use the word qariya for the same town. So qariya and Medina can refer to the same thing. Now the discussion is, well, is it referring to large towns, big towns? Why is Allah using the word Qariya? Why would Allah use the word Medina? Because those are the two words that occur almost interchangeably in the Quran. Medina means city, Qariya means township, right? How are they interchangeably used? It seems to be the case that when Allah highlights people doing or unified on something, when people are united in doing something, at tajamu because Qara actually has to do with unification. So when people are united on one culture, or united in you know, one cause, or united on one religion, or united on under one nationality, and there's no diversity. Allah is highlighting how everybody's kind of synchronized and following the same thing. Then Qariya is kind of the more suitable, subtle suggestion to describe that place. And that same place, when you want to describe its civilization, its diversity, its development, its hustle and bustle, then the word Medina is more appropriate. So it's... Qariya and Medina, I could call Dallas a Qariya, I could call Dallas a, a Medina, I could call them both, but I'm, what I'm hinting at for my listener is two different things. I'm highlighting how people are all on the same page in certain things when I say Qariya. And I'm highlighting its diversity and its development and all that stuff when I'm using the word Medina. So it's interesting in the Qur'an when Allah talks about destroying towns or towns that were punished. He never uses mudun or cities or countries, he uses the word Qura. Qura is the plural of Qariya. To suggest perhaps that these places that were destroyed, it's not the places that were cursed. It's not the, it's not the location. It's the people that were unified on the wrong thing. That's what made them punishment worthy. You understand? So it's also interesting that you never find in the Qur'an, ask the city. Was'alil Madina, ask the city. But actually, was'alil Qariya. Allah sometimes doesn't destroy the town, sometimes He destroys the people of the town, right? And the town, the buildings remain. Sometimes the buildings remain. And, you know, Allah says, for example, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the verb. Ka'allam. Uh, man, I gotta find it now. It's, it's bothering me, so I'm gonna pause this lecture, I'm gonna dig it up. Ka'allam yagnaw fiha? I think. But give me 10 seconds. No. Yeah, I was right. Oh, wow. Okay, I got it right. Alhamdulillah. When Shu'aib's town was destroyed, as if they never lived there. People are all, the buildings are there, people are all dead. People are destroyed. The Pharaoh's people, the Qariya is destroyed, technically. Meaning, Pharaoh and his army got destroyed, right? But what's left behind? Maqamin 
How many gardens did they leave behind? Water springs. You know, and he says, well, and treasures. Hordes of treasure. No treasurer. Hordes of treasure. No security guard. And gracious homes. Mansions. And luxuries. That used to make them smile every day. They were living in luxury. How much of that did they leave behind? But when they were gone, neither the sky cried for them nor the earth. <laughs> what epic language in the Quran for when he did away with that people. What would, what, in, the Quran, in the Quran's language, we would describe that as the qariya being destroyed. While the civilization, the structure remains, right? It's the people that got destroyed. Now, the issue is, some have, you know, the, the debate in scholarly circles is about, well, Allah sends prophets to big cities, right? The history of prophets is that they were sent to large civilizational centers. And then the counter-argument became, well, Allah didn't send Yaqub to a city center. Yaqub was in a small town of Canaan, no-name place, Right? And how can you say that Allah only sends messengers, prophets to, you know, uh, big cities? I'll share my understanding of this issue with you. Perhaps in your own studies, you'll come to find that there's disagreement about that from what I share with you. I'm open about that. This is not what I consider to be the absolute truth, what I consider to be the most convincing position. I do believe that there is enough evidence in the Quran to say that prophets and messengers are two separate institutions. And prophets are all human beings that receive revelation. All of them can be considered prophets. But only some of them are considered messengers. So if you want to put it one way, all prophets, all messengers are prophets. But not all prophets are messengers. Think of it like, you know, uh, all, these, all these athletes are official athletes of the league, but not all of them are on this team. There's a particular team within the league where some belong, right? They're still part of the league, but they have a special squad of their own, right? Now, why is that important to understand? It seems to be the case that in the Quran we learn that prophets uh, are people that Allah gave revelation to, but He didn't necessarily send them to a town or a city to warn the people, to say that they better believe in Allah, and if they don't believe in Allah, then punishment of Allah will come, and they better change their ways because they are headed towards destruction, and then the people ridiculed them, and then they disbelieved in them, and even tried to kill them, and then he would give them miracles, not just revelations, but he would show them miracles, and they would still disbelieve in him. That saga is not necessarily the case of all prophets, but it certainly happens with messengers. Now the Arabic word for messengers would be Rasul, and the Arabic word for prophet would be Nabi. Rasul, a messenger, is someone who delivers a message. Literally, in English, messenger, jo the job of a messenger is what? Delivering a message. In other words, his job is to take a message that came from the heavens, from Allah, to deliver it to the people. So prophet, messengers are on a mission. Mes messengers are on a mission. And Allah will never let their mission fail. Allah will make sure that their mission is successful. And it makes logical sense that those men that Allah inspired like him, like the Rasul our Messenger were sent to major cities. You know why? Because like the example of Egypt just now, Egypt was the economic capital of the region, yes or no? By comparison, the Prophet is in Mecca. For all the Arabian region, for the, the entire desert of Hijaz, what is the economic capital of that region? 
What is the Egypt of that region? It's Mecca, right? Now why is that important? Because people are going to come there for one reason or the other. They're going to come there for economic reasons. They're going to come there for pilgrimage. They're going to come there because it's the cultural city center. They're going to come there because every main road goes through them, right? Because they're the ones that develop the road infrastructure because they're the main people. They're the main city. So they become kind of the heart that pumps the economy and the culture to the rest of society. So when a place becomes an economic capital, then it starts to become a cultural capital too, right? So when, when a place is economically significant, then it becomes the educational center for a society. It becomes the cultural and the arts center for that society. Then it starts becoming the you know, a musical center for that society. It starts becoming the, you know, um, you know, the, the philosophical center for that society. And other places start getting impacted by what they do, right? So you can have, uh, you know, like back in the day, the role that New York City, for example, played. For people that live outside of the United States, their, their picture of what is America, right? It was, it was like the tall buildings in New York City. That ain't America, but that's just a very small part of America. But the point is, it became a cultural phenomenon, right? It's a, it's a trend setting, or what the, the role London has in, in the United Kingdom, for example, right? These are cultural capitals. And then if you take some small town in Wyoming or some, you know, some you know, municipality in Idaho, right? Or you go to Tyler, Texas or something, somewhere, somewhere out in the outskirts, they have a town too, sure. You know, they're, you know they're great the great feature of their town is they got a Walmart or something, right? So they got that, great. But they're not setting the trends in society, are they? When something's happening in New York City, when something's happening in LA, when something's happening in Chicago, it might affect the nation. Everybody will know about it. But if something happened in Youngstown, Ohio, then the world might not learn about it. You understand? So Allah sent messengers to places that are going to have a ripple effect on the entire region. So it's like he's not even sending messengers to that one town, but the word will what? Spread. So he, he, and, and those are the people that are, you can say they are the, not just the economic elite or the social elite. You can also say that they are the cultural and educational, intellectual elite of that society. That's where the high-end universities are, aren't they? That's where the, the top-notch intellectuals are, right? And so when you go there, you're challenging the brain trust of that society. It might be easier to go and preach your message to farmers or to go preach your message to Bedouins who don't know any better. But the people that have traveled internationally, that have done the trade, that know how politics work, that know history, that are exposed to different religious views, when you take your message to them, isn't it far more challenging? Allah sent His prophets to the most challenging places. Allah sends prophets, for example, to the empire of Egypt, like Musa He sent it to Egypt, the cultural, intellectual capital of earth. He sent them, he sent them there for that reason. But the exception to that, this isolated, in the isolated desert of Arabia, he sent our Prophet ﷺ, right? He sent our Messenger ﷺ. But there were plenty of civilizations at the time of the coming of the Prophet ﷺ that were um, much more advanced than the Arabs. In fact, Arabs arguably of the time of Hijaz, you could argue, were some of the most backwards people on earth. Arguably, the Chinese civilization was way more advanced. India was way more advanced. The Persians were way more advanced. The Romans already had an empire. The Egyptians had their ups and downs, right? 
There were other civilizations that had left a mark on earth. But Allah chose to send His Prophet, His final Prophet to the house where Ibrahim built, literally in the middle of nowhere. And that's a, that's a remarkable thing that Allah did. You know, it's, it's something to contemplate. And I want you to actually think about that. I won't answer that today. But I want you to like, use your mind. Think about the fact that Allah sent our Messenger to a place where the world wasn't even interested in conquering it. Like, this was like the... Why would, I, why would the Romans want to conquer Arab territory? For what? More sand? What, what are they going to send their soldiers to get barbecued for? There's no natural resources. There's no strategic trade routes. There's nothing. The Persians are right there. The Abyssinians are right there. The Romans are right there. And none of them want to advance on the Arabs. And the Arabs don't have a standing army. The Arabs of Hijaz don't have a standing army. They don't stand a chance if those empires come at them. They don't stand a chance. But nobody comes at them. One reason could be that it kind of becomes a no man's land, right? So if they encroach, then the Romans will be alerted. So they're kind of in this strategic no man's land situation. So leave them alone because that might trigger an international world war. That, that could be a reason. And there may be other reasons. Other reasons may be, what's the point? <laughs> what are we going to get out of that? It's just, it looks like just an expense with nothing in return. And yet Allah chose that place to be the starting point of the greatest ripple effect that's ever happened in human history, the coming of the Qur'an. The coming of Muhammad Rasulullah wasallam. So one way of looking at this ayah is Allah did send people to cultural capitals. And in the case, I'll just, I can't help but drop some nuggets at you. Allah sent His Messenger to Makkah, and within a generation, Makkah and this message became the cultural, intellectual capital for much of the civilized world. Like the ancient Persian Empire, and the historic Roman Empire, and the ancient Indian peoples, and the African peoples that have their own history, their own philosophy, their own religious traditions, now their best minds are becoming scholars of Islam and studying the Qur'an, right? And this no-name place from the world standard becomes the intellectual standard. Man, it's just... From a, from a political science point of view, from a sociological point of view, that history is mind-boggling. It's, it's so, so silly to reduce it to wars. It's so silly. Just, it's easy to conquer a nation with an army, right? But can you conquer their culture? Can you conquer their longing to go back to the way things were? You can take over a nation today. Haven't superpowers taken over countries today? Hasn't that happened? But guerrilla, guerrilla warfare continues. Civil war continues. The call to independence against the, the occupier continues. Yes or no? How is Islam spreading and spreading and spreading? And as it's spreading, people are embracing it and they're shedding cultures behind. They're shedding. It, this is a, a pretty important question. And to reduce the spread of Islam to war and to reduce it to battles won is simply just not understanding history. Is not understanding something very profound. Allah says to His Messenger when He's in Makkah, the Prophet doesn't know yet that this earth, like the hadith comes later on, the Prophet said, Inna Allaha zawali al ard Allah folded the earth for me and he fold, he, I saw its easts and its wests. Right? And he saw Islam everywhere, the flag of Islam, like Islam spreads everywhere. Everywhere. This, this concept is one of the most mind-boggling things to me personally as a as a as a you know a, a citizen of this faith 
and as someone who's traveled just a little bit, man, there are times when I travel and I'm like on some other obscure end of the planet and you meet a Muslim and you're like, Allah really meant every corner of the world. Like, it's, it's just, it's incredible what Allah has given us. But now let's look at the other side of this equation. You see, there are three phrases. We didn't send anyone from before you except men. Phrase number one, men. Nuhi ilayhim that we inspired. That's phrase number two. Min ahlil qura from the people of the town, from among the citizenship of the town. I would like you to put one and three together, meaning men from among the town folk. What that would mean then is that we never sent anybody except one of the people. He was just one of the men from the town. We didn't send an angel from above. We sent someone people can relate to, someone who was among them, who was seen as a citizen of that town. In fact, even when he wasn't a citizen, they would think of him as more loyal to the well-being of a nation than even, any, even their locals, like Yusuf salam, like Musa salam. He has more credibility among the people than even the locals, right? So he's from them, meaning he wants the best for them. But Allah would appoint these prophets, and they wouldn't be from some elite, top-down kind of position, even though if you look at it, even when Allah puts somebody from an elite position, He would put, put them in a human place, in a very relatable place. And with Yusuf He started him from a very relatable, very human position, and then brought him upwards, right? So people see him as one of theirs, right? A lot of candidates nowadays in political campaigns, they're like, I used to work minimum wage. I worked on a farm. My daddy owned a farm. Like, and they'll talk about this kind of stuff to be able to relate to that voter, voter block, right? But Yusuf has lived that life himself. Rasul has herded sheep. Rasul has been among the town. He solved their disputes before he was a prophet. So Allah is saying, we never sent anybody except regular people that were among the town. And what set them apart? So the two things are, they were men, they were from among the town. And what's the middle that sets them apart? Yuha ilayhim or Nuhi ilayhim, we gave inspiration to them. Allah is telling the, telling the Prophet ﷺ, you are one of them. You just told them that you're not a mushrik. Ma'ana mil mushrikin. In the previous ayah, you, I commanded you to say, you're not from those who do shirk. But let me tell you something. I've always sent people that were part of the citizenship. That were one of the people. A, peop, a people's people. A people's person. That's who I sent. But every time the distinction was, I would separate their, their, their world view their hearts from the people by one thing, inspiration that was given to them. I still love you, I still care for you, I still want what's best for this town, but now what I know is best for this town is inspired by revelation that's been given to me. That's the only difference. My view of what is good and what is bad has changed. My view of truth and falsehood has changed. It's inspired by this revelation. That's the only difference. But notice the first phrase, Rijalan, and the third phrase, Min Ahlil Qura, all goes back to the people. I'm just a regular person, and I want what's best for you. And what's in the middle is re revelation is what separates me. So it informs, first of all, I'm just a human being, just because I get, get revelation doesn't make me an angel. And on the other side, I get this revelation, not against you, but for you, because I'm from among you. So that middle placement of Nuhi ilayhim, actually helps inform both of these phrases. On the one hand, Rijalan, and on the other hand, Nuhi ilayhim, or Min Ahlil Qura. Then he turns his attention to the people. These people that he's come to serve, to help. أَفَلَمْ يَسِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ 
Haven't then they traveled? Haven't they then traveled along in the land? What's this entire story about Egypt, right? So, and you would be hard pressed to think that the ancient Arab people had no idea what the Egyptian Empire was. Man, the planet knew what the Egyptian Empire was. It left an imprint on Earth. So when they say, "Haven't they traveled in the land?" Egypt is not that far away, and they've seen other towns too—the town of Madian, you know, uh, so so. Um, Aad and Thamud, those nations, they've seen those, the destruction of those nations and their ruins. Actually, some of those ruins still exist. You can find pictures of them on Google, right? But the Egyptian ruins are very famous. They were, they were extremely famous. In fact, the Romans in their empire wanted to renovate many of them because they wanted to say to the world, we're the new Egypt, right? So they weren't even gone. But how is it that these massive structures are now just ruins, right? Now, what, what is Allah telling them? Why don't you pass by those places and realize how powerful, how indestructible those nations were, and look at where they are now? Why do you think that you can outrun me? Why do you think that because you have strength, that you, the, the revelation or Allah's teachings don't overpower you? Allah overpowers all. And it's not just, this ayah isn't just about great civilizations and great empires, because you're like, I ain't a great civilization, I just got a one-bedroom apartment. So this is not about me. Really? Because in this surah, who thought they were all that? The brothers, right? And they got humbled. And now Allah says, by the way, there were people that were much more arrogant than these brothers, and they had much more reason to be arrogant because they had way more. And see how they turned out. You should be terrified to think there were people that were thinking night and day, how do I hold on to the empire? How do I, what's my succession plan? When is my son gonna become king? What about this invading army from here and there? This was on their, how much is the treasury? How much treasury have we collected? How's the economy doing? Have the rivers dried up or not? They were running the government, they were running the world. And now where are they? What happened to them? They are deep under the ground. You know, the Sphinx that you guys see pictures of in Google, and some of you have actually gone and seen, wasn't actually known a couple of hundred years ago because it was buried deep under sand. It was rediscovered. It was non-existent to the earth. It was just sand. People walked all over it and said, man. <laughs> and those ruins, the point of them is to remind ourselves of our mortality as individuals and even mortality as nations. Do nations think they can over outrun us because they're more advanced? Because they have technology? Because they have military might? Because they have economic advantages? Because they have higher education? Because they have infrastructure? Weren't these the things that made them superior? He says, haven't they traveled around? And who is he talking to? Arabs who live in mud homes, man. They don't have no tall structures. They got no pyramids in Mecca. The architectural highlight of Mecca is the Kaaba. <laughs> That's the highlight of it, even at that time. Right? So Allah is like, why are you? There are people that are much more advanced than you whose ruins you walk by. Why do you think you're all that? And this is a highlight to the irony of arrogance. Some people are arrogant, you can understand, because they got billions of dollars, or they got huge followings, or they have great power. They have a presidency, a, king, a kingdom. They have, they have a business empire. They're the head of a hospital. They're the top surgeon. Whatever. People look up to them. They've got this like 
accomplishment underneath them and they feel like they have a right to be a certain way and condescending towards people. Fine. As much as that's still not unacceptable, it's kind of understandable. Oh, their power got to them. Right? Their money got to them. Their position got to them. Then you find people that have nothing to show for themselves. Not even in the worldly sense. And yet they're so arrogant. <laughs> right? They get so much joy out of putting someone down. They get so much pleasure out of you know, humiliating somebody. Or instilling pain into somebody. They get so much, there are people that are just vindictive like that. And people like that, like, what have you accomplished that you act like this? Right? This, this, that insecurity, deep insecurity of somebody can turn into arrogance. Look at Surah Yusuf. The brothers, on the one hand, are arrogant. But that arrogance in the beginning was rooted in what? Insecurity. He loves, he loves Yusuf more. Weren't they insecure? And that made them overcompensate by trying to impose how superior they are constantly. So your insecurity can turn into arrogance, and arrogance is one of those unforgivable sins, isn't it? مَنْ كَانَ فِي قَلْبِهِ حَبَّةٍ مِنَ الْكِبْرِ Nobody will enter heaven if they have a mustard seed, a seed's worth of arrogance in their hearts. May Allah not make us of those people. And if we have it, may Allah help us remove it from ourselves. Right? So he says here, didn't they travel in the land and take a look? Now, another thing to think about here, when you travel and you look at ancient ruins, whether it's Roman ruins or Egyptian ruins or the ruins of Ad and Thamud, etc. What do people do when they go to these places? When they go to old castles, when they go to, you know, like, uh, you know, Roman arenas, you know, what do they do there? They, they take pictures and they post selfies <laughs> it's a tourist thing. People take their selfie sticks next to the pyramid, you know, with a camel and... Right? Does that look like someone's terrified at, at looking at that and thinking about their mortality and their, uh, you know, they're, they're like, they're in, they're in awe of what Allah did to these people and how their arrogance came down crashing on them? Is that what's on their mind? Or is this is so cool. Take a picture from here. This is a better angle. Oh, there's a night show. At, there's a light show at night. Let's stick around. I want to go on a camel ride. So epic. <laughs> the thing that was supposed to instill a sense of mortality, the thing that was supposed to bring us to taqwa of Allah, the thing that was supposed to scare us, has now become entertainment. Isn't that a scary thought? That means that Allah can send an ayah. Because the previous ayah were, how many ayah do they pass by and they completely ignore them? Remember that ayah? Now you see that ayah in a different flavor. How many ayah do they pass by? How many ruins do they pass by and they take pictures and selfies and put them on their Instagram page? Look where I've been. Man, that's so epic. <laughs> it's, the irony of it is almost like hard to process. What, what we've become. And the, terror, the terrifying thing of that is that ayat of Allah, because that's an ayah of Allah. Allah decided to preserve those places as an ayah of His. Right? When an ayah of Allah becomes a joke, when an ayah of Allah becomes something you easily dismiss, the Qur'an says, and it teaches us, 
when they discuss, when they dismiss those ayat, the ayat of history, the ayat of the world around them, the ayat in the sky, the ayat on the earth, aren't these ayat on the earth? When they ignore those ayat, it becomes easier for them to ignore the ayat of Allah in the Qur'an. Because these are ayat too. When you get used to ignoring one, it becomes easier to ignore the other. So you just get in the habit of i'rad. i'rad what's the word i'rad mean? To ignore, to overlook. Which is in ayah number 105. They're, in complete, they're completely oblivious to these signs, these miraculous signs. Didn't they take a good look? Allah didn't say, didn't they take a good look at their buildings? Didn't they take a good look at their history? Or the pillars? He says, How was the turnout of those who came from so long before them? Well, how did they turn out? How did that turn out? In other words, you go to this place, you see the what? Right? You see the, the pyramid, you see the, the dilapidated pillars. But Allah doesn't want you to wonder about what. He wants you to wonder about how. You see, that's the kicker. It's not, مَا كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ Man, Allah didn't say, didn't they go see what happened to them? What happened to them? It's not, what is not the question? Even in Surah Al-Feel, أَلَمْ تَرَى كَيْفَ أَلَمْ تَرَى كَيْفَ فَعَلَى رَبُّكَ بِيَصْحَابِ Didn't you see how Allah dealt with them? Here, didn't, you, didn't they take a good look? How did they, they turn out? How? Meaning, that nation could have been thriving. How is it that they ended with destruction? How did they become these ruins? How did that happen to them? That how is timeless. The what is history? But the how is timeless. Let's talk a little bit about the word aqibah today. Aqibah I keep translating as outcome. Yeah? So let's talk about this word aqibah. Aqibu al-qadam, the, or, the etymology of it, the origin of it. Aqibu al-qadam mu'akhiruha, when your foot drags and the last steps you take are called aqib. Al-aqabu min kulli shay, asabu al-matnain. The aqab can be the nerves on the, both sides of your back. Wasaqain uh, and the nerves in your legs. Walwadifain yaktal the bones in the foot. Yuktalu billahmi yumshaku minhu mashkan the ones that are the nerves that are or the tendons that are attached to your leg bones that are then scraped off very difficult to scrape off. Wayunaka wayuhadda wayunaka min allaham wayusamma minhu alwater the ones that are cleaned off the bone and then straightened out the part that's really clingy to the bone this fine piece of Nerve that is attached to the bone or flesh that's extremely hard to pull off. That's actually called a aqab. Wa uqbatul qidr and the, the pot that you cook in, the bottom of it when you're done cooking, and there's stuff that's kind of stuck at the bottom, especially when I cook because I overcook and then it burns, and then there's a thing at the bottom that requires some kind of you know nuclear chemicals to take off, and you have to put a hazmat suit on and all that stuff. And if you don't do it right, then it splashes back on your face, and there's all kinds of fun things happening there. But anyway. Especially with noodles. I don't know what it is. It gets so sticky at the bottom. Anyway, that's actually called a uqbah. Waste or spices that get stuck to the bottom of the pan. Almost become one with it. They fuse with it. Right? Some of you just give up on that and you, the bottom of your pan looks like the map of Pakistan. and that's, You just give up. You're just like, I'll just leave it there. It's okay. In, free ingredients for next time. <laughs> Disgusting. 
العقبة and same now another word عقبة from the same origin الجبل الطويل يعرض للطريق فيؤخذ فيه وهو طويل سعب شديد a, 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 a path in the mountains that you are it's kind of like endless it just stays and you keep going and going and there's just because you just when you think there's you're over the mountain range there's another 20 mountains you can see in the view when you get past them there's another endless horizon in front of you that's called عقبة ومن هذا عقب كل شيء وعقبة بالضم وعاقبته آخره so the last of something, the last of something is one kind of meaning of aqiba. Yuqalu ja'a fi aqb shahar. They also say somebody came in the aqb of the month, which means they came at the end of the month, the very last of the month. And they say, إِذَا جَاءَ فِي الْأَيَامِ الْأَخِيرَ مِنْهُ بِالضَّمْ So aqb shahar would be when they come even after the month is over. وَعَقِبُ الْإِنسَانِ Listen to this. وَعَقِبُ الْإِنسَانِ وَعَقِبَتُهُ ولده وولد ولده الباقون من بعده يتبعون أثره لاصقين به من خلفه لأنهم نسله It means that the عقب of a person or the عقب of a person is their children and their children's children You know what's left behind from the food is the stuff that's stuck on the bottom What's left behind of you is these children and their children and their children What the last of your remnants, right? So you know how people say, oh you got your grandma's eyes? Yeah, that's all that's left of her now Right, she passed, that's all that's left of her. And that's going to pass on, right? To some remnant of somebody. A little bit of that left. Oh, you smile like your uncle. Or you smile like your great-grandfather. Or something like that, right? That would be the aqib of the children's 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 children, like that. Or you see like a great-grandpa's black and white photo, and like, oh, that looks like me in high school. <laughs> right? So that would be a aqib. So now overall, المعنى المحوري لحاق غليظ بآخر الشيء When something tough Sticks together to the very at the very end of something, أو خلفه or behind it. فيه ويمتد معه that stays with it long for long. Basically, العاقبة أصلها كل ما يأتي في عقب الشيء أي آخره. Everything that comes at the very end is called عاقبة. أي هي ما يؤول إليه أمره. That's what something leads to. Basically, cooking led to that stuffy, sticky stuff at the bottom, right? Having children eventually led to these traits that got passed down. Aqiba is used in the Qur'an, now here's the connection, Aqiba is used in the Qur'an to describe the stuff you do in this life, there's an effect of it that sticks to you. And that stuff will eventually come and that's the outcome of what you did. Everything else will disappear, everything else will evaporate, the only thing that will be left is these remnants and these effects of your actions. Sometimes Allah will describe them as footsteps. Because when you walk in the sand, you leave footsteps behind. Sometimes Allah will describe them as aqiba, the traces that you leave behind of your deeds. He says, What were the traces or the remnants of those who came much before? How, how were their outcomes? Meaning, the outcome of their deeds, what they, were, what they were committing themselves to, what they were gluing to themselves is this terrible outcome. Prophets came to unglue that from them. And they didn't want to separate themselves from this terrible, destructive, self-destructive path. They just didn't want to separate themselves from it. مِن قَبْلِهِ كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الَّذِينَ مِن قَبْلِهِمْ وَلَدَارُ الْآخِرَةِ خَيْرٌ لِلَّذِينَ اتَّقَوْا And the home of the eventual. So this is their aqiba, but the home that's even more final after that. So there's the aqiba in this world, which are the ruins. But there's an akhirah after the aqiba. The akhirah would be 
the final home after this final home. Meaning the you would say people call the grave in English culture cultural expression. They say, oh, he got buried in his final resting place, right? It ain't no final resting place. That's temporary. Then there's the uh, then there's the final that's coming. Allah says the home of the final end, the actual final end, khayrun is better. I love this ayah for, for just a view of history. You've got a place that everybody in the world looked up to, the pyramids for example, right? And now it's nothing but what? Ruins. Even though at one point there was no place more beautiful than that. No place more magnificent, no place more awe-inspiring than that. And now it's nothing but ruins, right? Allah says, by immediate comparison, and the home of the eventual, as if to say, there's a home there that doesn't deteriorate. There's no wear and tear. It doesn't become a ruin. It's better. It's better because, first of all, it, ha- it doesn't need any upkeep. You know, Allah compares homes in this, everything in this life is compared to the next life with two, two adjectives. خَيْرٌ وَأَبْقَى وَمَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ خَيْرٌ وَأَبْقَى It's better, and longer lasting. Better and longer lasting. And those are the two things we want in any product. I want a better wash, I want a long, longer lasting wash. I want a better car, I want a longer lasting car. I want a better house, I want a longer lasting house. You could have a long lasting ugly house, it ain't better. You want both. You want better and longer lasting. And in this ayah Allah alludes to that with the word better. He says and the house Allah has for you is better. And the better includes, part of a better product is actually embedded in it is the idea that it's longer lasting. So the quality of it and the durability of it is so much better. And he says, لِلَّذِينَ اتَّقَوْ For the people who protected themselves. As you pass by those ruins, there were people that lived in those towns that were believers too, that protected themselves. And they are in a much better home now. They are in a much better place now. That's just history. وَلَدَارُ الْآخِرَةِ خَيْرٌ لِلَّذِينَ اتَّقَوْا أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ And أَفَلَا يَعْقِلُونَ Don't you then think? And then also, don't they then think? When are they going to think? When are they going to apply their intellect? This question should be asked to the Quraysh. But this question, أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ Just reading it today, in 2020, could be asked of you and me. It's as if Allah is telling us today, don't you think? You haven't thought about this? You haven't exercised your intellect? It's a very probing switch to the second person. As if, even as a reader today, you were reading about the Prophet and Quraysh, and the Prophet and Quraysh, and the Prophet and Quraysh, and then all of a sudden Allah said, and you don't think? (laughs) You're like, oh, oh, this was about me. Oh, this wasn't about the history lesson, This, this was about me? And that, that's what Allah has done here, remarkably in the, in the second person reading. Don't they then think? And also even then, it's a present tense verb. What that means then is, it has continuous effect even today. Aren't we the kind of people that are going to think? I leave you with thoughts about the word yaqilun, inshallah, because that's going to come up again. We're going to build on it in the next in two ayahs from now. And that'll be the last thing I share with you today. Aqal in Arabic, Urdu speakers use it, Aqal, aqal istamal karo, Aqal is the mind. But Aqala in Arabic is actually the verb for tying something. So Aqalatil Mar'atu Sha'raha, the woman tied her hair. And the ancient Arabs used to wear, you know, the, the, the Khalijis used like, like the scarf thingy, and they got the rubber doohickey thingy on top. 
The rubber doohickey thingy is actually called the iqal. They call it igal now, but iqal is the proper pronunciation. And the iqal was not always made of rubber, um, and it was the, its purpose was not to have the scarf fly off into space. The purpose of the iqal was actually it used to be a rope, and they used to wrap it around their head. And then when they parked their camel somewhere, because the camel doesn't come with anti-lock brakes, they used to take that rope off and tie what? The camel up. And when they were done with that, they would wrap it around their head again. So actually, the iqal is the wrap around the head, and it is associated with tying your animal, knotting up the animal. The two themes inside the word aqal are, again, something that wraps around the head and something that restrains. In ancient Arab philosophy, the mind is two things. Obviously, the mind is here, literally. So in Arab culture, when something is close to something, you call it the same thing. So they can, the Arab poet can call your sword your leg. You know why? Because it's attached to your leg. right? So they can do that. By association, they can... So instead of calling it a fruit, they can call it, I ate the tree. In Arab cultural language. That doesn't mean they went on a bark and... <laughs> that's, that's not what that means. That means they plucked the fruit and ate the fruit. Right? Even though Quran uses that. They tasted the tree. Allah doesn't say they taste the fruit of the tree. He said they tasted the tree. That's the Arab sensibility of saying something. Now, the reason I bring that up is, obviously the mind is up here, but the theme they associated with it is the ability to restrain yourself. True intellect is the ability to restrain yourself. And the opposite of aqil is a jahil who has the inability to restrain themselves. Now if, if I'm too angry, then I'll say things I'll regret later, yes or no? If I'm too scared, I might take action that I'll regret later. If I'm too greedy, or if I'm too in the, in the heat of the moment, if I'm too vulnerable, when any emotion takes over and I'm not able to restrain it, then the brain stops working. Right? Aqal in Arabic is not being smart. Aqal in Arabic is first tie your emotions up. You can have them, but have them within a leash. Don't let them go everywhere. Have them within a leash. And once you have them within a leash, then you can actually think clearly. Until your anger settles down, you can't think clearly. Until your fear settles down, you can't make a rational decision. You can't make a real decision when you're you know, duped in one emotion or the other. In, in deep sadness, you can't make a rational decision. You have to restrain those emotions and then be able to think. You understand? When Allah says, أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ There's actually a pretty deep wisdom inside that. What keeps you from controlling your emotions that you don't put them on pause for a moment and actually think? It's as if when we become people of impulses, I want to I want to show off you know I, I want to show off online or I want to entertain myself or I want to I want to give myself pleasure in this way this way or this way I want to consume this this or this any impulse comes any emotion comes we want to surrender to it surrender to it surrender to it there are no leashes on it there's no restraints on it when those restraints aren't there our, our ability to think isn't there we're too consumed by our emotions we become emotional beings and when we become entirely emotional beings, we cease to become thinking be beings. Our feelings run us. Our feelings control us. We don't control our feelings. You understand? So there's the real you, the real me, is actually someone 
who is riding this horse, this horse, we'll call it our emotions, and it's got reins. It's a wild horse, it runs fast, that nafs of ours. And we've got to be able to pull these reins and control it, not stop it, not kill it, because we need our feelings too, but we need to control them to be able to think clearly about things. Why is it that you think that young, a young teenager, for example, is not able to think about their purpose in life, or contemplate a mountain, or just look up at the sky and think about how they should be grateful for, to Allah for the rain. And when you tell them those things, they say, uh-huh. Right? You know why? Because their feelings are engrossed somewhere else. Their feelings are unchecked, their emotions are unchecked, and they're running in many different directions, keeping their mind from being able to think what it's supposed to think. That's when you can go to a pyramid, and instead of seeing what you're supposed to see, your desire to show off your selfie and the filter you're going to put on it is more important. Because afala taqilun is taking place. This is actually the Quran, this is Quranic philosophy. This is the Quran's way of teaching you and me how to actually become the kind of people Quran wants us to become. We're entitled to our emotions, but we need to learn how to curb them within bounds, within healthy bounds, those bounds that Allah teaches. Those bounds that are deep inside of ourselves too, we know them. We actually know them. You know the worst sinners in the Qur'an? The, the, one of the worst words for sinners in the Qur'an is al-fujjar. Al-fujjar. Al-fujjar actually comes from the word fajr. Fajr means the explosion of light in the morning. That's why it's called the fajr prayer. A fajr is someone who explodes into sin with every impulse. A feeling comes to them, they just do it. They give in to every emotion. Literally Allah describes what hawahu. They follow their whims. They follow their whims. They get a feeling they want to do it. You know, and I just want to feel happy. Why can't you just let me feel happy? Because your feel happy is your God. That's who you actually start worshipping. That's what becomes a God. You know, when you say, well, Subhanallah, wa ma ana min al-mushrikeen, I don't commit shirk. Remember that ayah, Have you seen someone who takes their own whims and turns them into their God? And Allah allows a person like that to be misguided even though they have knowledge. And puts a seal on their hearing and on their heart. And puts a covering over their eyes. Who's going to guide the person like that after Allah? That's the question Allah asks. Who's going to guide him after Allah? Allah already gave him guidance. That didn't work. You think you can guide him? <laughs> scary ayah that also ends by the way with afala taqilun don't you think don't you want to use your mind so we want to use our minds history is a powerful teacher history is the ayat of Allah we should become students of history with that mindset not for interesting facts to learn how did people before us make those mistakes and how we shouldn't be making those mistakes you know the the Qur'an will take lessons like this and he will juice them into one place so nobody forgets. When he says, وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُسْرِ I swear by time, human beings are in loss. Because when you go to the Egyptian pyramids, you're going to think of a time when they were successful and they ended up in loss, right? And you don't have to know all, memorize Surah Yusuf, you can just say what there when you stand there. وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُسْرِ That ayah alone is a statement of all of human history. All of human history is inside Walasr in the Insan al So this is what Allah does. If we become people of thought, 
I pray Allah gives us the ability to control our emotions, to become people of thought, to become the people of aql that Allah wants us to become. One of the most often made complaints in the Qur'an, أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ Don't you then think, don't you then use your intellect, don't you then restrain your feelings and get clarity of thought. I pray that Allah makes all of us those kinds of people that have that clarity of thought. بارك الله لي ولكم في القرآن الحكيم ونفعني وإياكم بالآيات والذكر الحكيم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته. I think I broke my desk. I can't do the the, the maneuver today because I, I broke my desk.